You're listening to Ruining Your Childhood, uh, the show where we ruin your childhood. <laughs> All those things that you thought you loved are horrible. No, they're not. They're fine. But they're, yeah, they're, it's it's nuanced. Uh, I'm Sarah. I'm Kirsten. Uh, you know who we are at this point. Uh, we're your hosts, and we're going to talk about Nancy Drew this week. I'm so excited to talk about Nancy Drew. I'm a... A big fan. I am too, uh, of multiple versions of this character. And there are a lot of versions. It's so many. Uh, she has evolved a lot throughout the years. Well, uh, I have only ever read the books. So I have not seen any TV versions. You haven't even seen uh, the 2007 movie with Edna Roberts? Um, I think I saw like a, a piece or two of it, but I didn't watch the whole movie. Oh, man. I saw it. Uh, Kirsten, you're familiar with the Warner Theater, and not everyone who's listening to this might be familiar with the Warner Theater, but it's a theater in our downtown um, that is old, very, very old, and uh, when it was still open, it showed movies that had been out of theaters for a while, and um, I saw it there, and at that point, they it was winter, and they didn't have any heat. So I sat in a cold movie theater and watched Nancy Drew starring Emma Roberts. What a beautiful little story. Yeah. Little cold Sarah in the beautiful Warner Theater. Yeah, eating ice cream because they didn't have all... I mean, they had some concessions, but you could also... There was a Carvel uh, ice cream place attached to it, and you could bring in ice cream from there. Oh, man. uh, I didn't know that. I really missed out. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I learned just... Jumping off here, I did not know that the Hardy Boys came before Nancy Drew. There's a lot of things I didn't know about Nancy Drew going into this, because I also read the books uh, when I was younger. I read, I think they were my mom's books. Well, actually, more likely, I think uh, my mom got them from the library growing up. And then from what I gathered, uh, the books I have were published in uh, probably 1980, because they say in the beginning, 60 years of Nancy Drew. Um, and Nancy Drew came out in uh, 1930. So, wait a minute. Oh, my math. My math. <laughs> We're not mathematicians here. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. I, wow. 30 plus 60 is 90. The, those books are from 1990. So I, I have to imagine that my mom, um, being a whole adult at that point, just wanted a collection of Nancy Drew books and bought them for herself as an adult at that point um, because she was strictly a library gal growing up. Um, But anyway, those were the books that I grew up reading. And also what I learned is that uh, Carolyn Keene, who has seemingly been writing Nancy Drew books since forever, uh, is not a real person. What? She's not a real person and the author of The Hardy Boys isn't either. Um, yeah, it was written by the uh, Stratmeyer Syndicate, and I'll get into that. So um, it sounds like a crime organization. It does. I the thought- Stratmeyer <laughs> Syndicate is at it again with more feminist heroes. No. <laughs> I mean, well, like I thought that maybe like the Stratmeyer Syndicate, like calling it that, was some kind of like play on the fact that you know their most their two most famous book series of the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. So, like, if that was sort of a play on that, uh, like a crime syndicate. But no, it turns out syndicate is in reference to, like, syndication, as in um, a process of creating serial novels that uh, I'll get more in detail 
into here in a bit. But but yeah, Edward Stratmeyer was the dude who created both of those very famous titles. And he created the Hardy Boys in 1926 and the Nancy Drew in 1930. But the guy, Stratmeyer, was born in 1862 in Elizabeth, New Jersey, to uh, two German immigrants who were very uh, kind of stern and hardworking. And um, they were very, uh, his father was a keen businessman. And I think he uh, learned a lot from him, from what I gathered. And he wrote books from when he was a teenager. He actually had a printing press that he owned himself and he would just print things for his friends. And eventually when he was 26, he sold his first story to a magazine. And I think he got something like maybe like $75 for it. I forget the exact amount, but it was, you know, big bucks back in the day. And I think his father discouraged his writing at first, but then once he saw he made money, he's like, all right, yeah, start popping out books, kid. And Stratmeyer was kind of coming up during a time where uh, public education was becoming more widely common. And so there was an increasing market for dime novels. Uh, dime novels began around the 1860s and were generally weekly or monthly serials that sold for around 10 cents, though that varied as time went on. Uh, early on, these were predominantly westerns like Buffalo Bill, Cody, uh, but as we get into the 20th century, uh, mysteries and, and crime dramas kind of become the more popular thing. I think it's so cool that like at this time they needed so much content that they were giving kind of a a chance to everyone to write a book because they just needed to publish so many books to keep up with the market. It's sort of like um, like uh, writing for just the internet, like blog posts, but of the 1860s. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like um, YouTube versus television and things like that. Yes. Where I think some maybe more traditional people look down on a, like a newer form of media that's more accessible to more people uh but like ultimately it's just that's just what it is it's just more accessible it's not necessarily less than um but i think that's kind of how it was viewed in comparison to like traditional hardcover books cuz a lot of these were like just little paperback um you know, just little little tiny books and uh this was actually kind of the precursor to comic books and because like the weekly and monthly serialness of it and just the fact that there was a ton of them and you could get them for really cheap and ju just as like cheap entertainment and i this really started to pop off during the civil war and uh i i just imagine like civil war soldiers you know picking up something i don't know if that's a true thing it's just something i picture in my head you're like, you know what, I'm missing two of my legs and one of my arms, but I can still hold a novel with one hand, but <laughs> luckily it's paper, so it's not as heavy. <laughs> I have horrible PTSD, um, but I, damn, if I, if I don't love Buffalo Bill Cody. Is this, is this uh, where we, like, get the term pulp fiction? Is that from this era of, like, dime store novels? Yeah, so, like, this is kind of where the term pulp sort of uh, originates. Like, these are pulp stories, from what I gathered. Uh, the, that's I think that is where we get this term. And another thing that was kind of very uh, new about it with the serial nature of it is that it had very formulaic plots and very predictable, you know? It, it sort of 
not only the precursor to comic books, but also the precursor to like TV shows like we see them today. Like what's the what's the word I'm looking for for like oh cop like procedurals. Um, okay. So like where where uh you just know what's gonna happen like you know they're gonna solve it in the end but it is like a slightly different story every time i think that's something that uh we all we all need we all need to know that the the bad guy is gonna be caught in the end and everything's gonna work out okay it's just those type of uh shows are comforting to watch and i would imagine sorry that those books would be comforting to read especially if you're in a war that's horrifying you'd probably like to just see a little bit of uh good guys winning in the end sort of knowing what's gonna happen would be so nice yeah just like a traditional um just repetitive good triumphing over evil kind of thing i think i think that would be soothing to the the soul of you know someone experiencing a lot of turmoil on the kind of national scale. That's why I've watched The Office 40 times in the last 10 days. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, we are recording this on election night, um, and this will be released, you know, in a a potentially new changed world. I don't know. But, But yeah, more or less that is what we're doing right now. We are distracting ourselves from... What's going on? We're trying to think of happier times like the Civil War. (laughs) Uh, uh, If you can hear us sounding nervous, it's because we are. We're on on the edge of our seats over here in not a good way. (laughs) Yeah, we're just um, butts clenched. It is is stressful. Um, This is just everything we can to not... Uh, constantly track the, the the maps, so so yeah, we can relate to these people uh, a lot, and for for their need to just escape for the length of just a quick little dime novel. You know what the the kind of the backstory of this Stratmeyer guy is that is that his name Stratmeyer? Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the Walt Disney coming up story, like yeah the sort of hard-nosed industrial dad and young man with a dream and a printing press apparently yeah yeah he just was able to take something that is sort of artsy and uh not considered a very traditionally acceptable uh career path and he turned it into a very successful business as we'll find out and despite his hard-nosed dad saying forget that would do something useful so the other thing that happened here is that at the turn of the century uh good quality kids literature was generally educational and more expensive like a dollar and there wasn't a lot of fun stuff aimed specifically at kids kids would read dime novels secretly if they could but they weren't really age appropriate people like Stratmeyer knew that uh, and I think he wanted to do something that would capitalize on the fact that kids could read now more commonly and, would, you know, might have some pocket change and could buy, you know, dime novels and things like that. So that's kind of the, the new thing that Stratmeyer brought to this was marketing to kids specifically, like viewing kids as consumers. That's kind of a new thing in this time period. I was going to say up until this point, 
uh, kids don't have a lot of money spent on them specifically. Like uh, yeah. a lot of families don't have any spending money for luxury items, especially if those luxury items are only for kids because yeah. a lot of families have a lot of kids. So they got to spend money on things like, you know, food, uh, staying alive, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's funny that as soon as there's a market where kids have a little bit of extra money, that capitalism comes in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, um, <laughs> I feel like before parents were just like, you want some entertainment? How's, you know, not starving for entertainment? <laughs> How about you fall asleep? Fall asleep and have a dream. Okay. <laughs> Go get a job. Go to the factories, kid. Uh, if you're bored. Oh, uh, and, and Stratmeyer very much was a capitalist. Like, like I think, um, you know, I think generally people assume that if, if you're a writer or any kind of creative, you, you are maybe more right brain and artsy in that way. But no, he was he was very organizational and had a lot of ingenuity and um, you know good old capitalistic American tendencies. He knew what he was doing, and the thing that really kind of revolutionized this genre specifically in 1906 was when he created Motor Boys. And so what he did was Motor Boys. Motor Boys. I don't know. I have no idea what it was. I didn't look too much into like the plot of Motor Boys, but like. <laughs> In my mind, that I des- picture, like that deserves some investigation. Maybe <laughs> I I know that it was like um so someone he had like ghost wrote for before had something called Rover Boys that was <laughs> I I yeah I, and I don't know I, all I all I know is that it was very um it was an adventure story like it it was about you know young boys going on an adventure and. Uh, stuff that would appeal to kids and so I I think the idea behind it this and everything he created was that he was giving kids what they wanted and not what adults thought they should want so that's why this isn't like educational and it's not like super moralistic it's just like kids going on adventures and having a good time and so whatever Motor Boys was about and, and, and by the way in my head I'm picturing like a kid who's like half motorcycle, half kid. I know that's not, that can't be what it is, but uh, that's what I picture in my head. Um, That seems like that might be it. Um, But also I'm starting a motorhead cover band called Motor Boys next week. So (laughs) you're trying to get in on this. Yeah. Yes. Email the podcast if you want to be my guitarist. (laughs) Yeah. We we need a good guitarist. Um, Uh, (laughs) I want to play the tambourine actually. Uh, that, that's what I'm good for. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> but what what was kind of new and slightly revolutionary about Motor Boys was that he made them better quality. He made them like cloth hardcover. So they were more respectable looking to parents, but also fairly easy to produce and still could be pretty cheap. He made them 50 cents instead of 10 cents, uh, which was still in the affordable price range for like kids with pocket change but not so cheap that he had to make them cheap uh he just he just made them look slight look and feel slightly better and normally things that were hardcover were like a dollar or so i would also think that that would be better if you're marketing to kids because something that's just paper is going to rip really easily 
in the hands oh, yeah. of ruffian children. So so he's really thinking ahead there. He is, yeah. And like so it can become kind of enduring classics and not just like a, a cheap thing that you get and then read and then throw away. Right. Uh, so that was also very much a good thing. There was still a profit to be made off of it. It was just like only a few cents. And the publishing company was like, oh, you sure about that? You sure you want to make it that good of quality and just make a few cents off of each sale? And he said, trust me. And because of like the the sheer volume that he sold, because like these were hits, he still made like a huge profit. So he was going Genius. for uh, quantity, even though it was, you know, less money right away for each one. And it sold like hotcakes. And so what happened next, because he couldn't really keep up with the amount of like new books that was uh, in demand. So he syndicated. Um, he produced it in kind of an assembly line style where he would hire multiple ghostwriters for each series. And he would uh, write up like a couple pages of plot and send it to them and like he would just outline like key plot points right and then the ghostwriter would type up an actual book and then send it back within a month and then boom like you'd have a book but like it was still under the like Stratmeyer company that's really brilliant to just think of but do spare a fault for those poor ghostwriters who had a month deadline to get their finished book to the market yeah right like <laughs> like okay here's the plot uh there's a mystery and you're gonna have to write all the dialogue and <laughs> content <laughs> uh it has to be readable for kids so don't make it too complicated and you have one month so go good luck bitch yeah he, he just he really just cranked them out or he didn't his ghostwriters did uh they just cranked them out one right after the other and uh yeah i do feel bad for those those writers that just had to pump out quick little novels i'm just picturing you know those old-timey green visors like people just <laughs> typing away with those visors on in a giant room with just 50 writers just pumping it out as fast as they can just click clacking away on you know some cheap children's lit yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's also what i picture and this is what became the stratmeyer syndicate not a crime syndicate a uh a book syndicate unless you call <laughs> a theft of creativity a crime <laughs> <laughs> well i i presumably he paid them um i i think he ultimately in in the true capitalist fashion he was making the most money off of it but like they, they were getting paid <laughs> that's good at least yeah he wasn't stealing so much as he was outsourcing you could say fair enough yeah and then and then you know the ethics of that i guess just kind of boiled down to your views on capitalism am i right uh <laughs> and you know so over a decade before he even created the hardy boys his syndicate was wildly popular and he was really rich so the the hardy boys and nancy drew despite being by far the most famous thing and like the thing he's the most known for he was popular before this he could have like retired and uh not even made the hardy boys and he would have been fine but in the 1920s mystery novels were all the rage with adults 
so he wanted to create a like mystery like crime novels like the the black mask and whatever but kid appropriate and kind of combined with the kids adventure novels he had made throughout the 10s and early 20s he read something by agatha christie and was like yeah i think i could work this in yeah (laughs) all right this is what they're into kid like He definitely capitalized on, like, novelty, like, the the cool new things that, like, people would be into. He definitely took that and kind of ran with it a lot of the time. It's so strange that for so long, no one else noticed that there was a market to just adapt adult stories for children. Right? Yeah, they're like, kids need this whole other thing. There's, like, a fantastical world, and they have developing minds, so we need to make it super moralistic. And they never thought, like... Kids just want what adults want, which is entertainment. We all want trash. Give us more trash. (laughs) Give us the garbage. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Uh, (laughs) Basically all humans, what all humans want. But yeah, we're going to be covering the Hardy Boys next week. So I'm not going to go super in depth into the plot of those right now. Uh, I'm just going to, just in how it plays into Nancy Drew, which is that it was the precursor to it because the Hardy Boys were a smash hit among boys and also girls and in Stratmeyer was like ah girls are customers too um (laughs) it's less feminist and more just oh girls are also consumers oh yeah no he was by no means a feminist because he kind of thought women belonged in the house uh oh boy I didn't know (laughs) we were gonna get there (laughs) well I mean he was like a man and that was born in 1862 so like you know he he's no um revolutionary feminist or nothing he's just he's just a white man of his time and not to say not to say that as an excuse when i say someone's of their time it's not i mean he was still a sexist uh, it's just that most men were sexist back then uh <laughs> he says i'm fine with him reading but that's as far as i'll go <laughs> No more. Just, uh, you can read your sweet little book there, lady, but that's it. Yeah, like, you can read as long as you give me your money. Um, (laughs) and don't, you know, don't set your hopes too high on what you want to be when you grow up. (laughs) Oh, do you know what? I just, I don't know why I'm picturing this. Maybe I'm just, uh, missing her today, uh, especially badly, but I was picturing Ruth Bader Ginsburg just reading Nancy Drew as a child and I'm crying a little bit. Just oh, just well, like, picture. oh my gosh. Interestingly, um, the multiple, I think every female su- Supreme Court justice there ever was has referenced, like, Nancy Drew as an early influence for them. Because there was something about um, Sotomayor, at least, and I'm pretty sure Ginsburg as well. So that is that would be a correct theory there beautiful just so beautiful Uh, on election night this is a uh, a big sad um we're actually going insane is this podcast progressing yeah like every once in a while um i i get my texts at the top of my uh laptop screen and i i I get texts from our group chat with like more election results and i'm just trying to ignore it but i genuinely silenced it because i was like i don't want to know right now 
get back to me later i can't handle it at i can't handle the moment by moment uh oh yeah no and there's like no need i did that in 2016 where i followed it moment by moment and obviously that that didn't help anyone it didn't Um, change the results at all so it only hurt yourself anyway (laughs) we are doomed Uh. (laughs) uh and i guess because I don't want to assume that everyone listening is super familiar with the Nancy Drew stories, uh, but so if you're not, I will give a quick rundown of the whole concept. Basically, Nancy Drew in the original series is a 16-year-old sleuth that uh, likes to solve mysteries in her town, and she has two best friends, Bess Marvin, who's like, you know, very traditionally feminine, and, and then she has George Fane, who is a tomboy and you can tell because she's a girl named george i forgot about george until this moment (laughs) i loved george as a child and i'd forgotten about her i forgot completely how did i do this how did i do this disservice to george to not remember her she she's like your your classic like uh tomboy cut her cuts her hair short plays sports like she's that girl so, so she was the one you related to as a kid? Uh, well, I always thought I was sort of a mixture between Nancy and George. Like, That's I wanted fair. to solve mysteries like Nancy, but I wanted to be, like, tough and cool like George. Yeah. And you, you did play sports in high school, so, like, that, that, that checks out. And But you were also, like, an academic gal. I like a little, I like to be a little Nancy and a little George. The three flavors of girl, sporty spice, uh, intelligent spice, and girly spice. That's that's all, That's the only three. You can only be those. <laughs> you, you get to be a Bess, a Nancy, or a George. N- no one else. That's, that's all you got. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no accommodations. Uh, and and Nancy-, <laughs> Nancy also had a boyfriend throughout like the whole series named Ned Nickerson. Uh, who is he plays football for Emerson College? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Well, the, at least he does in the later ones where she's aged okay. up to eighteen. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank God. I was like, yeah. I didn't remember a problematic college boyfriend. So yes, what? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I assume he was in high school with her when okay. she was sixteen. Um, All right. I just remember at, at some point I read that he played football for Emerson College, which is in Boston, which implies that river heights the town in which she lives is in massachusetts probably i uh, or somewhere in new england it does have very new englandy vibes just a small town somewhere in new england yeah so she just likes to solve mysteries and you know i think his attitude towards women was very prevalent in the text because you know sure she was very smart and capable but she also uh is pretty and dressed well and was well liked and she didn't really go up against authority much. Um, she was literally just good at everything. And one of the first lines of the book is like, uh, Nancy Drew, an attractive girl of 16. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need to know about her right there. Yeah. Like the fact that she's conventionally attractive is a character trait uh, because they, they wouldn't want you thinking otherwise. Uh, you know, girls can be smart, but only if they are also pretty. And white, that's also crucial, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but 
she's she's and when I say good at everything, she is also athletic. So I, I did say no combinations earlier, but Nancy kind of is the combination. She is very traditionally feminine. She's intelligent and she plays sports. She rides horses. Uh, she's good at school and she's also very comfortably middle class. Like her dad's a lawyer. And that's a, that's a big plot point because she helps him with his cases. His cases kind of help her with her cases. Like, that's a helpful thing. But she's also, like, she doesn't really struggle in life. Um, she has a really nice car. Uh, in the early series, it's a roadster, and then it cha- gets changed later to uh, some kind of convertible. But, like, she never has to really worry about money, or she's not, like, working a part-time job or anything. She's just you know, driving around town in her nice little car and solving mysteries. In her pretty skirts that she never gets dirty. Yes, yeah, and her, like, <sighs> her little penny loafers or Mary Janes or what what have you. Whatever rich girls were wearing at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the only thing that would be, like, kind of a flaw that gave her more dimension was the fact that, like, her mom had died when she was very young and when I say flaw I don't mean like a that's a personal flaw to Nancy because that 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 they messed up to say Uh, (laughs) what I mean by that is that she um like that's the only thing that's like not perfect about her life uh is that she does not have a mother they do however have um a house made person a domestic worker named Hannah that lived with them and is kind of um in, in the original series she was kind of just purely a housekeeper but in the later updates of it she was kind of a surrogate mother to nancy but regardless that that was kind of the adult woman in her life um but also the fact that like like you know they had a housekeeper um not the most relatable to the average kid but it did really prop up kind of their their upper middle class lifestyle right it lets uh, kids who have never had a housekeeper kind of imagine for a moment what that might be like. Yeah. To have a nice car and have a housekeeper and have a dad who wants to help you with your own projects. Yes. Well, kind of, because he also, um, especially in the later series, kind of is a little overprotective of her and doesn't. But, but you know, probably as like a proper, you know, mid-century dad would be uh, by in that view. Right. But, and of course, in addition to kind of glorifying very white middle class values, there's also racism, uh, which you could have seen from 10 miles away uh, that that there'd be racism in the original series. And if you don't remember explicitly racist scenes, it's because you probably grew up with not this version, because the version that, that got rid of the racist stuff came later. But the version in the 30s and 40s and 50s had... Anytime there was a person of color or, uh, you know, a Jewish person, any, anyone who wasn't like, you know, a wasp w- was portrayed in explicit like stereotypes. Uh, black people were portrayed as very, you know, feeble minded. Uh, and, you know, anytime she went to like there's a one book where she had to go to Chinatown for a case and, you know, it's very Orientalist. And so the, and one one of the more egregious examples is where there, there's one time where she goes to visit a friend of hers in the South and uh, they, they're, you know, they're rich like her and they have a housekeeper named, oh, what's her name? Beulah. Beulah, the housekeeper who is black and cooks a lot of very delicious sounding food. Uh, but there's one point where Beulah, you know, 
serves them food and leaves the room and then and then the the mistress of the house so like her friend's mom is like uh i try to offer beulah help with things but she uh just wants to do it all herself like she loves like you know that kind of thing she she loves to serve them yeah yeah that, Uh, that um i mean when you said she was going to the south i already knew where it was going and i didn't like it one single bit yeah uh, and there was this other part um with where like she got locked in something in in like some kind of closet somewhere uh, or some tool shed and there was like a a watchman that was supposed to be watching a post and uh it was because the bad guy the watchman was a black man and the bad guys had tricked him into drinking and so he like was fooled into because they were portraying him as stupid and then and yeah and then she was frustrated with him because he had abandoned his post and like you know it it was just a, a whole time um and then later in later versions when they kind of scrubbed it of just the particularly egregious stereotypes they made all those characters white like beulah just became like a a uh, white housekeeper who was just, you know, making uh, not food that was specifically coded as like southern black cuisine. Uh, and then, and then the the thing with the the watchman, uh, he he was he was made white, and he hadn't been fooled into drinking. He he had just been like tied up and thrown in a closet. Like, why didn't could... they just start with that? That seems like a much what? more logical plot point. Anyway, it seems really. Like, you took 20 steps when you could have gone five right, to make yeah. someone be tricked into drinking, regardless of race. That's just a really stupid plot point. It's wild. Like, the, that that makes a lot more sense that he would have just been tied up. But, but, yeah, and that's also why the later versions were a lot shorter. They were, like, shorter by, <laughs> oh, no. like, four or five chapters. Because... Oh, God, they had to cut out four or five chapters of racism? <laughs> well, I don't think it was all racism. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Like that, that's... Just, just a horrible racist tirade. They just chopped out. It was a whole chapter. <laughs> were there Jewish characters in Nancy Drew that they rewrote? Because I don't remember... I don't remember ever reading about a Jewish character. I couldn't find any specific examples in the like I only like actually reread one of the books for this um and and uh only parts of it cuz you know that that's a, that's a lot of books. Um Right. There's a lot of them. There is and I I myself have uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have I myself have had eight books. And uh, the text is big, so they're not, and like they're not huge books, but like that's a lot of reading. But you got like, other things to do in your life other than read Nancy Drew all day, <laughs> like uh, stress about the myriad things I could be stressing about. But like, <laughs> but yeah, I couldn't find any specific uh, Jewish characters or stereotypes. But also, I have the scrubbed versions, and also, also, uh, I couldn't find any specific examples detailed in any articles or anything on the internet. But except for a mention that there were Jewish negative Jewish stereotypes, and I, I imagine the way that would have presented would have been um, like a maybe like a stingy business owner with uh, a traditionally jewish name or something right like little little covert things where like if you're a a white protestant kid and you don't know what the the secret 
coding in there is, then then you'll miss it. But like, it's kind of like implanting that in your head in a very covert way. Right. Subtly getting you to read the idea as a child when you're very impressionable so that you just grow up sort of thinking of it. Yeah, basically. So I have to I have to imagine that's what that was, but I I, I don't know any specific examples. But, you know, I all of that was gone, but you know, River Heights became a pretty exclusively white town. Um <laughs> it actually became a whites only uh suburb. Yes, we went to uh derogatory stereotypes to uh just a monoculture. So it, I, I don't want to say it's an improvement because I don't know that it is. Right. Uh, it's, it's really hard to say which one's better in that instance. I mean, both are very horrible, so. Right. Mm. Yeah. But th- so that happened in uh, 1959. And that was after, uh, after Stratmeyer had died and his daughter Harriet had taken over. Wait, is, is Harriet like some sort, like, I feel like that's early to realize that you shouldn't put racism in books. Well, apparently, so it wasn't even Harriet's idea. Harriet didn't want to edit the racism out. Uh, I just it, need one person to be good in this. <laughs> well, it was it was the uh, it was the publisher. They had a new publisher, and they didn't. They wanted that stuff out of there. But I I think it was for business reasons. I was going to say it was probably so that black kids could buy the books and not feel horribly about themselves after reading them because by this point the late 50s we're getting into the the civil rights movement so at the very least white society is realizing that there are people who don't like racism at a bare minimum that's what they're realizing even if they themselves don't see that racism is bad uh they maybe can point out what people might find offensive and use it for capitalism. So I think that, I think that's what was happening here. I don't, I don't think um, Harriet Adams, which is his daughter's married name. I don't think Harriet Adams just like grew a heart because you know, she, she probably grew up pretty wealthy and she is white. So like, I don't know that she had many stakes in making it not racist. Right. Because she probably, uh, had already grown up with her dad's ideas at that point yeah and she was probably born in like she's probably born like the 20s so right she she's not gonna be like a beacon of anti-racism or anything we don't trust harriet and we don't trust the publisher or anyone they're all bad but yeah they're always making business decisions (laughs) and harriet's probably like did it what my father wrote um take out all of those horrible tropes that i grew up with she probably reacted like people did when uh they took aunt jemima's face off of the syrup bottles that's truly oh my god yeah like probably i i wonder if there was outrage like that from people who were like i can't believe they would take the explicitly racist content out of my nancy drew not hashtag not my nancy drew yeah, um, like, <laughs> yes, they were definitely using hashtags in, in the 60s. Um, um, what I'm trying to imply here is that if you still have racist ideas in this time, you are literally from the 1950s mentally. Like, Just uh, acknowledge that you are thinking the same thing as white people in the 50s. So 
in addition to taking out racism, they also changed the character of Nancy Drew just a little bit. They upped her to 18 because the driving age had changed and her driving around is a big part of the character. Uh, so it, I, I imagine it was just easier to change the age than remove cars from the story. Uh, uh, I didn't know that they changed the driving age to 18. Yeah, I think uh, for a little while they did. Let me look it up. Uh, well, that's weird. The source I said said they changed it because of the driving age, but um, maybe it was just like the common drive, the common age at which people were driving. I don't know. But regardless, they changed the <laughs> they changed her age to sixteen, uh, and they changed her car from a roadster to some kind of fifties, sixties ass convertible. And I think it was blue. Like I think that's a very th- a, a, a nostalgic thing for people that they remember is that she drove around like this blue convertible. So that that's the car is almost the character in itself. Right, the car. It's, her, it's actually Kit from Knight Rider is Nancy Drew's car. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, and then also, like I said, they became shorter. They don't just cut out uh, the racism. They cut. They cut out like other just extraneous parts of the story. Like they used to start the stories with dialogue. Like the beginning part of the original of the first book is like her having a conversation with her father. But in the updated first book, like the one I read, it starts out with literally just Nancy Drew is an attractive girl of of 18. I wish they would have kept it with the dialogue. I really love books that start with a conversation. Yeah, me too. Like, it feels very classic to me, and, and I enjoy that. So I, I am sad they got rid of that. But they, they just kind of cut right to the chase in the new ones. I think that, I don't know if they're realizing that kids have pretty short attention spans, but I, I don't know. In, but this this is the version most of us have read. So if you grew up na- reading Nancy Drew, unless you are really old or just had old versions of the books um, or had a specific version that was re-released in the 90s that had the old racist stuff in it that did not last long. Wait, um, what? Yeah, that's that's another thing. They um, A new publisher had it and they briefly, briefly ran... Um, the original books with like a disclaimer in the beginning saying like this reflects old stereotypes or whatever and they thought that was like a better way to do it i'm going to call my mom immediately and be like hey will you specifically read nancy drew and tell me if the versions that i read as a child have the racist stuff in them or just the lack of all people other than white people uh, homework project mom yeah yeah uh, but if you, have the, if you have the versions that have like the yellow spines with like the blue lettering but like the cover has a picture of nancy like with a clock or you know whatever the story is uh um, right. that's the the all white version okay uh and those are like, the common ones you see in like school libraries i think i have that version of some and then i have a collection of three put together like the first three stories put together in a collection yes so though that that was the one from the 90s because they they only released the three that's the racist one i think so you need it i have, have the racist mom. one you might <laughs> um have your mom read them. oh my god <laughs> report report back to us next week uh, oh and it was okay i got them as a present it was actually a very lovely gift from a family friend who um 
knew that I loved to read and knew that I loved Nancy Drew. So she bought me this like really pretty collection <gasps> that's potentially racist. It might be. <laughs> it uh, might be double racist. Only one way to find out. Uh, uh, I'm very interested to see which ones you have. I mean, you most likely like the, the ones you have aside from those three are probably just like the standard uh, 60s version um, that, that, you know, we all know and love and uh are now you know that are now being ruined for us as is the the theme of this podcast <laughs> uh, um, but, but but yeah I, you you might because it was it was published in 1991 and so um if they had been around for like a few years after i don't know how old you were when you got those books but like if you were a little kid the timing the timing does kind of line up yeah it was a, a small child around um eight nine maybe so um yeah so, so that, it depends it could have been i'll have to investigate mm. well even if the most egregious things were scrubbed there are still things worth noting that are kind of inherently baked into all of it uh these books are clearly upholding a very lily white middle class version of small town america that much that much is clear um it's it's very it's it's very uh sanitized and um whitewashed and uh like the good guys are white people and uh the bad guys are either also white people or uh people of color uh and not necessarily the bad guys but like just people along the way that are like not part of this vision are portrayed negatively great I do remember one about a mannequin, and I think that one's probably problematic, because I think there was, like, uh, maybe some, like, Asian racism in that one, but Mm -hmm. I'm not for sure. Don't quote me, but uh, I'll have to look into it and see if it's problematic reading it as an adult. Yeah. I remember the one specifically where I was getting some big old like Orientalist vibes was where she went to Chinatown because she found a letter with like a dragon crest on it and just like the whole experience of like going to Chinatown and like things being kind of mysterious and you know it was it was very much that but I would not be surprised if um, there was more uh, Asian racism throughout because I feel like that's a pretty common thing in uh, white centric mystery stories is a little bit of like mysterious asian stuff right that 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 feels very common and the other thing about uh that's sort of inherently part of the story is that um if she were anything other than a conventionally attractive middle class white kid her interactions with police would have looked a bit different uh uh like, and I say conventionally attractive, and I specifically mean that in terms to her femininity, because I think uh, women and girls that are conventionally attractive are valued more in general, e- even by authority figures. And that value might not be very uh, good, like that's sexist in and of itself. And they might, you know, patronize her for, you know, just being like pretty, but it's still probably had her getting away with more stuff absolutely if she were some like you know if she were unattractive or if she weren't uh petite and thin if she were Mm. larger or you know 
even if she was a super tall girl, it would be different. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, she, uh, I think part of the thing about being, like, a, a teenage girl that can, a teenage white girl that can get away with things is being smaller. And, and I think that that plays into it a lot. The the whole little old me. That yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. So, like, I, I think that's, that's a big part in this case in particular with, like, white womanhood and white fragility that that really played in into her favor um because she frequently like goes to the, the police and uh you know has a certain trust for them that obviously a lot of other uh groups in the united states do not have for obvious reasons and and like she did in the original series sass the police a bit more because there is this kind of relationship that's interesting where like she is doing what the police can't don't or won't do by solving these mysteries and i think in the in the original series she was like ah these dumb cops like she's she's sassing them a bit more and then in the version where they scrubbed out racism they also had her respecting male authority figures more which oh, is interesting goodness. yeah um and and that might be i i don't know if that's in response to maybe the civil rights movement or if that's in response to just uh they wanted to make it more quote-unquote kid appropriate or, or what? Like, I don't, I don't know what that was for, because honestly, someone who's somewhat of a vigilante, uh, in her own way, though, because she's, she's a, a, a white kid, she's not a vigilante, she's a teen sleuth, like, because of the, the nature of that kind of story, they're usually, they usually have a bit of an antagonistic relationship with the police, but in the more popular versions in particular, she's friends with the police not friends but like she is friendly with the police and goes to them with things so just she's a lot better at falling in line as Mm -hmm. these get scrubbed yeah she's doing them favors she's not um like ah you guys are useless i'm just gonna do this for you she is she is just helping them out right and a willing participant Mm -hmm. (sighs) yeah like she wants to see the bad guys you know, go to jail and, and all that stuff, uh, which which I think is like kind of the standard American view, unless you are a person who is more radical throughout most points in history. Like if you're considered more radical, you might not like see that as like the ultimate positive end result. Um, but by like the standard like white middle class view, that is like the goal. And so I think she that's very that's another way that it's very much playing into that. I I don't really remember, but are the crimes in Nancy Drew, are they mainly just thefts? Is that the... It's is... theft, and in the, the version I read, it's so, a case of someone being cheated out of their will. Like, or being cheated out of someone's will, like a relative died, and just a, a quick summation of the plot of the very first book is that uh, there she comes across this these two sisters that are raising their granddaughter great niece or someone um and her her parents had died and they had like some great uncle who died recently and uh some cousins of theirs who are rich ended up with all the money even though the guy said that he was going to leave the money to these sisters and other like lower income relatives and so basically the whole plot is her trying to uncover the missing will and so she it is a good like it is good that she is helping these people but like she is still she's seen as altruistic and it's very like um 
I don't know if white savory is the word because the other people she is helping are uh, presumed to be white. Uh, otherwise, it probably would have been noted. But it's it's sort of the um, the like privileged middle class person saving a poor person. Yeah, which exactly. is like the little sister of white savior is mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. rich savior, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Where she's like, oh, these poor people, I'm going to help them. They uh, don't even have a curve. They don't even have a little convertible to drive around in. <laughs> <laughs> these uh, poor people. <laughs> How much does the banana cost? $10? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, it's that kind of thing. Like, it is still rather patronizing in parts. Um, even though that is like ultimately the good thing to do, but also like you know a, a more a less roundabout way of helping them out would have been asking her rich father to give them some money. I don't or know. Just if he's an attorney, he can legitimately uh, help them a lot more than little Nancy can. Yeah. Oh, and there's this whole conversation that happens where uh, she's talking to her father and the housekeeper, and uh, Nancy and the housekeeper are both like. Well, couldn't something be done about it? And uh, and her father's like, well, as long as uh, there is no later will, there's nothing that can be done because it is legal. It may not be good, but it is legal. And he's like very much all about the law, which is mm, interesting. Like, I, I, it is interesting that like in that scene, the women are the very idealistic. Like, well, that just isn't right. Like, something should be done about that. But then like the the professional like adult male is like. Well, that's just the way it is. The system works. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, so basically, she in, there's this whole other plot about how, like, the uh, the when she came across the two sisters, like, they had just sold some old, like, family heirlooms to these two dudes that also happened to steal some silver from them that wasn't for sale. And so she's also helping them out with that. And, like... I don't know. I, 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 I do wonder if, like, those moving dudes were, like, not white in the initial version. Like, that seems that seems like an area where it's, like, you know, she she's, like, what did they look like? And they descri- described, like, very basic things. Like, ah, oh, they're, uh, uh, one's got dark hair, one's got light hair. And, like, I wonder if that was different in the original. But I have no idea. It's, like, when, <laughs> when you know it used to be there, you're looking for it in every corner, mm-hmm. which makes yeah. it worse. <laughs> Uh, exactly yeah so um that's basically i think nancy drew that version of nancy drew is what's held up to be like a girl power icon and so what does that mean in this case a girl power icon like someone who's like literally flawless and good at everything and is very one-dimensional and then also is very chill with male authority figures doesn't really stand up to them very much and is a middle-class white girl and i think that's kind of um emblematic of that kind of second wave feminism right uh it seems very of the times and very um very 1960s where and and like i don't want to downplay the fact that nancy drew had a very positive influence on a lot of people including like you and i yes for sure yeah and, and, and like she did and and of course you know when you get older and like die like analyze things you loved as a kid and like oh it was all messed up 
like of course that's gonna happen but like it, it is interesting that that is the girl power icon we all like had right and i think she is so enduring because she is like very much like a passed down legend from mother to daughter yeah I think, you know you and i had mothers who grew up right after the racism got scrubbed yeah so they grew up with uh, a a girl figure who was radically different than a lot of what else they were seeing at the time yeah so it's like their nostalgia so obviously she's not perfect but yeah i don't want to uh erase the good that she has done yeah because she still there is something to be said about you know taking something that was popular with boys like the hardy boys which was you know similarly you could make some of the same things about how it upholds like middle class values and everything but also uh it was what was very popular with with boys and girls at the time and so being able to take that and then make a like a female counterpart that was doing more or less the same things with some minor alterations that that is worth something yes but anyway later on there were there were some spin-offs throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s and then a graphic novel in the the 2000s and they all kind of had different portrayals of Nancy Drew that were more nuanced and multi-dimensional but they weren't very popular and some like hardcore fans of the old Nancy Drew were displeased like in the one where she goes to college it's very much uh centered on romance and things like that with the mystery as kind of a subplot and then in the graphic novel um some people complained that like she was a little bit airheaded and a little bit um just not as smart as she used to be and like missed obvious clues but then you know you could also say that in the original the clues came very easy to her and like (laughs) is that too easy (laughs) (laughs) well when you said that people were upset because they changed the character i thought that you were going to say that they made her more progressive and people were upset about that i i didn't know that you were going to say that they made her somehow dumber and that was worse yeah you would think we would have moved a different way from (laughs) yeah uh, well well like the graphic novel version Uh, I heard some conflicting accounts because some of them said like she was just kind of like awkward and I feel like that plays into the the thing that was popular that became getting increasingly popular in the early 2000s where I'm a quirky girl yeah yeah (laughs) or she's just like she's not the most popular girl in school because that was kind of the thing like in in she's not like other girls yeah like most of the 20th century you have um like main characters and things like are kind of popular at school because that's how you know they're like a, a good person but then in starting in the 90s you get that thing increasingly more where like the popular girls in school are are the bad guys and the the good guys are like the the girls that are um not like other girls just like just like how you said and um kind of the underdog like you're rooting for the underdog now and I think maybe that's what they were attempting to do but it came off as her being less smart and savvy than she used to be got it now I'm kind of interested to read the graphic novel. That I am sounds, too. I, I may actually read that after this because I didn't know it existed, but I really I like graphic love. novels. So Yeah, me too. I love a graphic novel. That I'm surprised I didn't read those growing up because I did love graphic novels. Like That's how um, I read Greek mythology growing up was I, I had graphic novels of them, which was we- weird. Honestly, I kind of want to cover that sometime. Those weird as hell Greek mythology graphic novels. 
yeah, I I want to read those now that I know they exist. There's That's something they're awesome. like loosely anime based, but like also not. It's strange. <laughs> anyway, and by anime I mean manga. Not the point. <laughs> but <laughs> real quick, I want to cover some later versions, the on-screen versions. So the 2007 Nancy Drew, which is what I mentioned earlier that I saw in theaters starring Emma Roberts as Nancy Drew, is interesting. I watched a good bit of that earlier today, actually. Uh, it was It's available to rent on YouTube if you're interested. They aged her down. Uh, well, I think they did. They aged her, aged her back down to 16, but Emma Roberts was 15 when it was filmed. So it seems like she could have been 14. Like she, she Emma Roberts was a young looking 15. So, well, and we're used to seeing 16-year-olds that are actually 24, so right. to see an actual 15-year-old, they look 10, because we're mm-hmm. used to seeing older kids play yeah. 16-year-olds. She looked like a freshman in high school, but she could drive, so she had to have been 16, and it takes place in modern times. However, uh, it has an old-timey vibe, which was interesting, like she dresses like a grandma. <laughs> that's an odd choice <laughs> so yeah the the emma roberts version is very much portrayed as like a super type a overachiever type who like dresses like a grandma and which is like you said a choice she constantly is wearing penny loafers which she gets made fun of for eventually and like little blazers but you know they have cell phones and this is the the modern age uh <laughs> 2007. The, mo- the modern age of 2007. Everyone else was wearing uh, juicy tracksuits and she's in uh, penny loafers and a, pla- a plaid skirt. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole thing where she has like her lunch that she brings to school that's like um, this little red and white gingham with like a cup of tea and like a little sandwich and stuff. So she's just like a dweeb is what I'm saying. <laughs> a little rich dweeb. <laughs> yeah basically and the whole plot of it is that like her dad has a job in la and so they go to la by train for some reason from new england so they go across the country by train just to live in la for a few months while her dad works a case and she goes to school there and runs into these mean girls who make fun of her penny loafers and her whole her whole vibe which kind of makes sense because she seems insufferable i was gonna say i i'm I think she might be asking for it at this point. <laughs> yeah, like she uh, she is like constantly. There's one scene where she's like telling the principal like everything that's wrong with the school. Like there's lead paint on the stairwell, and we should have healthier options at lunch, like a salad bar. Like you packed your lunch. Why does it matter to you? Anyway, oh it, it just it goodness. just she's she just seems like a nightmare. Um, and I think that plays in the whole the whole fact that like people from our generation grew up with. Uh, awkward quirky girls and like mean girls where like like I think mean girls is something very emblematic of our time period where you know there's cliques in high school and and the underdog is the protagonist and like everyone's flawed Nancy isn't flawed and it makes her very unlikable not just to the mean girls of the school but also to us, the viewers. To normies like us. Yeah. No one can relate to her. because And there's also the scene where she's in gym class and she's like running ahead of everyone else. Like nobody likes this kind of person. She's <laughs> good at everything. Uh, that's obnoxious as hell. So it, it makes complete sense that sh- this was a box office flop. Like this did not do well. 
Uh-huh. It's very meta to say that like this character who's perfect and good at everything would be the worst person to meet in actual life. Yeah. Yeah, because like <laughs> no one wants to uh talk to someone who has no flaws, uh except like a just one very concise tragic backstory of her mom having died, which she doesn't bring up very often because I don't know. She's good at compartmentalizing, but they never really <laughs> explore that. Uh, and so her friends, her uh, Bess and George, she leaves behind in River Heights. And she eventually befriends the mean girls that bully her for some reason. And uh, I literally have it in my notes. Doesn't fit in because she's annoying as hell. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Ned, who isn't her boyfriend yet, but like likes her clearly uh follows her to la i don't know how he gets there on his own as like a 16 year old but he he shows up there and uh eventually like they kiss in the end but he seems like annoyed by her sleuthing which is like this is her whole deal if you're not into it like you don't actually like her because this is her entire personality if you don't support the one thing that people like her for you're probably not meant to be in a relationship with her right exactly ned ned and yeah and also in this version uh in the beginning part where she solves a mystery in her hometown the police love her they're like oh thank you for solving cases for us so because police love that police love it (laughs) police uh... loves when they get like uh (laughs) like stumped and like a little girl beats them out like that's their favorite thing they get really pumped about that kind of stuff (laughs) exactly so just overall it makes complete sense why this one just utterly bombed at the box office even though i think a lot of people saw it like i feel like um when i mentioned this to most people our age roughly most people remember it and they're like yeah like that that was a thing but it's not like the definitive version of Nancy Drew that we think of in our minds. So that one, whatever. Fast forward to 2019. Uh, the CW Riverdale's it. <laughs> well, actually, really? Well, so backing up a little bit, there was a version that CBS was going to do where Nancy Drew was a whole adult like detective for the NYPD. And she they had casted a person of color to play her but that one got scrapped before it even premiered but because i remember hearing about uh, that and being really excited for it uh, why? Um, although you know now that i think about it like i don't know that we needed like uh another cop show yeah yeah i don't think i, don't I think actually that's what we need today. Well, yes we need a person of color to play nancy but we need her to go back to when she um is the enemy of the cops <laughs> yes yeah when she's uh, like they find her obnoxious and i think that's kind of what the cw show did a little bit um and just a disclaimer i have a weird obsession with uh ridiculous cw shows i i think they're great um but in a way that's bad like they're bad and i like them those two things are both true we all (laughs) have things like that that we yeah we love something that we know isn't good yeah like it 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 doesn't need to be good because it's entertaining and i like it (laughs) So I have seen the whole first season of the show, and that's all there is because it uh, they managed to wrap up filming of the first season right before the pandemic. So because like mo- a lot of shows had to shut down production, and several of my CW shows that I watch actually had their season their season uh, finale 
a couple episodes early. Like they just had this rushed wrap up of it. But this one actually got it in before uh, shit popped off. So the the main things about this is that it's it's a gritty drama, which is hilarious just immediately because <laughs> that, that's what I mean by they Riverdaled it. They <laughs> they um yeah they did what they did to Riverdale with to, the Archie comics, which is they uh, which we should cover sometime. They uh, yes made it dark and gritty, and there's sex and there's drinking and there's you know whatever. Um, but they they went with the 18 year old version of Nancy and this one her mom had died her senior year of high school and she was going to go away to some fancy college but then that kind of like derailed things because she was real sad about that and instead she finds herself a year after she it was the end of the summer after her senior year and she's working in a restaurant in her hometown which they call Horseshoe Bay not River Heights I don't know why they changed that uh and she her friends um George and Bess aren't really her friends. They're just kind of her co-workers that she tolerates. Bess is like everyone, like she's she's like a new person in town and they're like fine with her. But her and George are like, they don't like each other. Because I guess Nancy kind of low-key, like Nancy's friends slut-shamed George in high school. Because George isn't a tomboy. She's just a bad girl. Ooh. Yeah, right? Like she's, <laughs> she's, uh, she's edgy. She's an edgelord, uh, and she, for some reason, also an 18-year-old, is the manager of this restaurant that they work at. Seems legit. Uh, Seems legit, right? She's an enterprising young bad girl. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I forget, I know that George, George's mother um, is, like, a an alcoholic and a spiritualist, and I think maybe her mom owns the restaurant, but, like, she just has to, like, keep up with, like, keep it up for her. I don't remember exactly, but... Also, Ned isn't her boyfriend right away. He is her fuck buddy, though. So this is not for kids. This, this is version. not for kids. This version is for <laughs> teenagers and above. Uh, and for uh, sad 25-year-olds that uh, <laughs> that that like bad television. But th- it is more diverse. I will give it I'm, that. I'm intrigued. If anything, you've just given like a trailer that has made us all want to watch the new Nancy Drew. I I hope so because it's honestly, honest to goodness, not bad. So it it, it does. What I will complain about it though is it does the CW thing where it makes it diverse on the surface, but the main character is still white, and that is a thing that I'm starting to find increasingly annoying about the CW is that they kind of, um. They are, they, they're diverse in the sense that they are people of color in the show. Um, and they're portrayed in, you know, well and then also bad. Like, there's there's multiple people of color and multiple people of the same race in the sense that, like, there's not, like, one token black person. That black person is portrayed bad, so it is bad representation. It's, like, it's multifaceted. And so it's just, like, you know, it's diverse. However, um, if the protagonist is still white, like, ugh. Right. Yeah, and so George Fane is changed to George Fan. She is Asian American. Bess is, uh, I believe, half Iranian. I am not hundred percent sure there. And Ned is black. So like everyone is a person of color except for Nancy and her dad and some other himbo they threw in just for fun. I I don't think he was ever in the books. His I don't even remember his name, but he's he's just the the token himbo. Uh, you need a white. himbo. You I need know a himbo. these type of shows. You need mm-hmm. a himbo. 
Yeah, you do. And and Nancy's a more flawed, multi-dimensional person. So like I think in a lot of ways this is an improvement, but also not not a kid's show. Don't show this to your ten year olds. Uh <laughs> it's it's a wild time. Um but it 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 was it was pretty good for like a CW show. It's like one of the better CW shows I've seen. But that so that's kind of where we where we're at culturally with Nancy Drew right now. Like that is as up to date as it is because I don't think they've started filming on the second season yet due to COVID. So like that's kind of where we're at. Like we went from you know a very whitewashed. No, we went from racist stereotypes to whitewashed to uh whatever the hell emma roberts did in 2007 (laughs) to to a riverdale-esque gritty cw teen drama teen sex capade yeah yeah basically um i'm glad that they made them 18 i always think it's kind of odd with riverdale that they're so sexual and then they're also teenagers yeah except the actors are all like 27 right or sometimes like 32. Uh, <laughs> we've come a long way, but still, you know, I think uh, in this era of just repeatedly adapting um, old source material, uh, at what point do we say, uh, maybe let's create new stories where the where the original source material isn't racist and we're not like altering racist stuff but instead just creating new things that just aren't racist to begin with that would be nice i hope we do that yeah just make another teen sleuth that's better but also acknowledge that you know acknowledge the racial aspects of it because that's the thing that this show also doesn't do yes acknowledge the the racial aspects and also the um just other privileges can we get a a teen sleuth who doesn't come from upper middle class family who's right who doesn't have a a lawyer dad to step in and buy her a new car let's i don't know make room for new stories but also new stories new new stories. stories new stories stop rehashing the old stuff um Instead of trying to erase and paint over problems, just create something that doesn't have problems to, from the beginning. Yeah, or like, you know, and everything's going to be like a product of his time. And like, obviously, right now, uh, society isn't perfect. And any piece of media created now is going to reflect that, too. But we also don't have to keep upholding the same white heroes of old in the same way uh, without acknowledging like the inherent baked in issues. So... Yeah, did we thoroughly ruin Nancy Drew? I feel like we ruined you. You ruined this a lot more than Casper got ruined last week. <laughs> I, I did. I did kind of uh, demolish Nancy. Poor Nancy. Uh. <laughs> we still got love for her. We still got love for her. Yeah, yeah. I still like. I still um, like her. Her car and like her outfit and like the the small New England town. Like that still is is kind of an aesthetic and a mood. Yeah. So I cannot deny that. One thing that I think we should do, though, is we should start a dead mom count. Oh, that's a great idea. We are two weeks in and we got two dead moms already. That so is a fantastic idea. This is such a weird trope of kids media specifically. It is. Yeah. Like I and like lack of parents 
in general, but specifically moms. Right. I think that's just, like, something people love to throw in as, like, boom, character trait. Uh, doesn't have a mom. So, uh, I'm gonna start it. This is two dead moms. Let's see if we can do it with every episode. Oh, I think we're gonna get a lot of I think we are. I think the Hardy Boys well, have a mom. I'm not sure. We'll find out next week. But uh, We'll find out next week when we talk about the Hardy Boys. Somehow <laughs> even more uh, racist than Nancy. <laughs> oh, man. I honestly have... I've never read a Hardy Boys book in my life. So next week is going to... I'm going to learn a lot next week. You're going to learn a lot. And uh, luckily for the Hardy Boys, they not only have white privilege, but they also have male privilege. So... Uh, uh, it's gonna be something and, and i'm interested to see what they what they altered in the um because it's the same company so you know when nancy drew got her rewrites so did they right i'm very uh, interested it's just so funny to me that like you can be so racist that you were too racist for the 1960s it's yeah just... it is wild that that's even possible <laughs> right because <laughs> like that's still real racist so it is uh well, America. That's... <laughs> yeah. Uh, whew, you know, we have to go check back in on the election. Oh, I don't want to. Can we talk about just anything else? Any other <laughs> any other media you'd like to talk about for the uh, next four to five days? <laughs> uh, Fox News. We'll talk uh, about that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, anything uh, but, please. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, this has been ruining your childhood. Uh, we have definitely, I think we've definitely ruined something for someone tonight. <laughs> yeah my day's kind of ruined uh my day's a little bit worse having known <laughs> well hey watch the watch the, the cw show it's i'm gonna uh, have to watch the cw show just to wind down from this it's not horrible i i will tell i'll tell you what and like there's some there's some plot points you won't see coming mm. uh i didn't even get into the plot but it's 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 something so i guess to that i say good riddance Good riddance. See you next time. Bye. Hey, thanks for making it to the end. I'd like to acknowledge a few of the sources I used to make this episode, such as Nancy Drew's Father, an article from The New Yorker by Megan O'Rourke, and The Not-So-Hidden Racism of Nancy Drew, an article for electricliterature.com by Andrea Ruggerello. An announcement, we are now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And so if you could subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and on Apple, give us a review with five stars. That would be fantastic and would help us out so much. And again, as always, I'd like to thank Zencaster and Anchor for providing their free services that allow us to make this podcast. Thanks.